Ladies and gentlemen, um, it's my pleasure to introduce tonight uh, Herman van Rompen. I think I may say that we are friends. Yes. <laughs> but And the proof, in a way, is we have gone to the same high school. We have been subject to the same kind of Jesuit education, which has shaped us differently, of course. Um, and then at some point, um, our careers diverged, and Herman went into politics, and I ended up in academics. But Herman has had a brilliant career, first in Belgium. And one of the things about Belgium is that it's a laboratory to shape good politicians. Of course, you need talent to start with, but it, it's really a laboratory to shape politicians. Good politicians have to be able to understand others, have empathy, they need patience, and they have to be able to come to some compromises. And Belgium creates the environment to, to do that. Um, as you know, we have uh, uh, coalition governments, um, but we also have a split among French speakers and, and Dutch speakers. And all this, uh, in a way, has influenced Herman in becoming a politician who understands the problems of others and, as a result, can forge compromises and can come to decisions that are key in a democracy. And that, of course, has led him ultimately to the European scene where he has been able to show what, how important it is to, to have these qualities. I think I can say that as uh, president of the European Council, I would say he has been the best president of the European Council. <laughs> but I, I, I really mean that he has been an outstanding president of the European Council, not one who shouts how it should be, but one who understands the difficult task of bringing people together, understands their motivations, and then ultimately is able to fashion a compromise that will last, right? That is the, the essence. I think that has been the essence also of his contribution as uh, president of the European Council, and that's why I'm so happy today to introduce him. Um, I'm sure that he will have a lot of um, interesting <coughs> and pertinent things to say about his experience in the past, but also uh, today and the challenges we face today in the European Union. Herman, you have the floor. Dear, dear Paul, you can understand me. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Ambassador, it is actually the second time I come to the London School. The first time was in September 2011 at the peak of the crisis in the Eurozone. I come each time that there is a problem, I come to the London <laughs> At that time, it was Peter Sutherland uh, who welcomed me. He was at that time president of, uh, of the LSE. Uh, and today, I'm happy that uh, Paul is our moderator, and he, he was so kind to introduce me. There was one amendment I have to make. 
And because you said you, uh, you have chosen for politics and, uh, and I became an academic, but you were in politics also. You were a senator. Forgot. A senator. <laughs> you were a senator and a member of the chamber. Uh, and I'm ending now in academics. Uh, so uh, it, in some way our ways are crossing. Uh, but by the way, uh, he is the most brilliant and the most famous Belgian and Flemish uh, economist. I'm very proud that he is teaching here in the, in, in the London School. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm of course more relaxed than I was uh, in 2011. <laughs> I'm more relaxed because I have no political responsibilities anymore. <laughs> I can be interesting in this capacity, but not relevant. And during my mandate, I could be relevant, but not interesting. <laughs> These are not times of relaxation, although overall, let's come back on this, the situation in the Eurozone is different compared, of course, to four years ago, those three very difficult years, uh, 2010 to 2013. The title of my presentation is The Economic and Monetary Union Work in Progress. You can't be more neutral than that. Huh? <laughs> but let me first stay, start with the, this, uh, this sentence that the Economic and Monetary Union is part of the European Union. And the European Union is more than just an economic project. I want to start with this because it is absolutely key. In times of uncertainty, and we are living in times of uncertainty, we have to remind ourselves on what is essential. And the EU is founded as a peace project 65 years ago, and we succeeded. In times of uncertainty, another basic truth shouldn't be forgotten. The Eurozone was conceived as a political project by Chancellor Kohl and President, uh, President François Mitterrand. And the underlying idea was a reunited Germany in a more united Europe. A common currency was an instrument for creating irreversible bonds between the nations sharing a common currency. And this is still the case. And so there are not only economic and financial aspects of the Eurozone membership. It is also very much a political bond and it has geopolitical ramifications. One reason the three Baltic states joined the Eurozone in the past five years, and Estonia did so even in the middle of the crisis in the Eurozone, so this was that, that they consider it um, as a matter of security. And one of the Prime Ministers told me, the security of belonging to Europe, of course facing the threat <coughs> coming from the East or from, coming from Russia. And Greece leaving would also have uh, repercussions, reper uh, repercussions, not least in the context of the current standoff with Russia over Ukraine. But even a, a visionary political idea needs a solid economic infrastructure. A common currency needs more common policies. And we have to admit that we started 
this adventure, this political project, without sufficient economic uh, infrastructure. It needs more responsibility, more discipline, and more solidarity, as in every economic and monetary union. There can be no solidarity without responsibility. And it is the right time to remind this basic truth. For me, it is paradoxical that we have to recall the political dimension of the European Union. I'm now speaking about the Union more in general. Uh, that, that it is paradoxical that we have to recall the political dimension of the Union to those who stress the importance of the common market, of the economy. And we have to recall the economic principles to those who defend the common currency as a political project. Again, a paradox. Another paradox is that in times of uncertainty, due to globalization, we notice a tendency to fall back on oneself. We notice, we notice it both within and among countries, but also, of course, within countries. Interdependence is a key word. We are all part of the main, as one of your great poets, for those who are British, John Donne said now 500, 400 years ago. He started with that other sentence, no man is an island, but I forgot this sentence uh, when I'm in, in Britain. Uh, and I stress, I stress the other part, we are all part of the main. But at the same, at same time, some are dreaming uh, of small is beautiful, remind this famous book of Schumacher that we read in the, in the 60s, and that is completely forgotten. In times of space, we apparently need also a place. Our interests lie in fewer borders. The hearts of some people lie in more borders. Another paradox. We are confronted with separatism in several European countries. In the Union and the Eurozone, exit has become a new word. We were expanding in, I speak now as an EU, we are expanding in crisis times. We shouldn't shrink after the crisis. Again, a paradox. And that is not only something that is happening in, uh, in Europe, also in the United States, we notice a movement of isolation, focusing more on the internal, very polarized situation. Interdependency needs more governance. World markets cannot stabilize the world economy automatically. There is no invisible hand on a global scale. More regulation and steering is unavoidable. This is the hard lesson we draw from the banking crisis, which brought us a few millimeters away from the implosion of the global financial system. And the G20, I had the honor to attend, I think, six or seven of those meetings, was the answer to that need. It worked well in the midst of the crisis, but it is now fading away as a policy as a policy body. The other answer, of course, you have the G20 at the global scale, the other answer 
to this interdependence uh, is the European Union and the European Union has to give that governance and that guidance. We badly need more governance in times of globalization at the global level and at the level of the Eurozone. Ladies and gentlemen, we live in a time of great impatience. The structures of the market and of our democracies push us towards the short term. Not only in the public sector, but also in the private sector. Quarterly results of listed companies and on the political side, a series of elections are waiting behind the corner almost every year or every quarter. A word that I hate is quick wins, but that's a, a word that is frequently used these days. But we will overcome the current problems only by investing on the longer term. And that's why we could only start in the Eurozone with a growth policy after having stabilized the Eurozone financially. And this turning point came in the autumn of 2012. Stability has and had a cost in terms of growth. This is inevitable. And once internal and external balances are restored, one can embark on a so-called growth strategy. The European Central Bank started later than others, for the reasons I just mentioned, later than others with a, an accommodative monetary policy and the others I mean the United States, the UK and Japan. And this accommodative monetary policy not only to stimulate growth but also to combat deflation. An important side effect is the depreciation of the euro which stimulates now the eurozone's competitiveness after years of an overvalued currency. Again a paradox. The fundamentals of the Eurozone's economy are better now than a few years ago, and the Euro is weaker. Our exchange rate was too high when? During the crisis time. So again, a paradoxical evolution. A second part of this growth strategy is the reorientation of fiscal policies. Our fiscal policies have since 2014, at the end of 2013, been less restrictive, actually neutral vis-à-vis -vis the cycle, after having decreased deficit to less than 2.5% of GDP on average. The focus now is not anymore on nominal targets on the fiscal side, but on structural targets. And that the result of all this is a more neutral stance of uh, fiscal policy. The result of this is that uh, the Eurozone is growing again with 1.5% this year and 2% next year. Almost all economies in the EU are growing for the first time in seven years. There is no danger of inflation, of, de of deflation. Prices will rise next year by 1.5%. So we have there was sometimes a threat that we could live in a Japanese model. That's not the case at all. In the EU, we are creating 3.8 million jobs in the period 2013-2016, or 2.6% growth in terms of jobs. We have, of course, to admit that we benefit from tailwinds such as low oil prices and a lower 
external value of the euro, but that was a result of our policies. But the truth is that both oil prices and exchange rate were abnormally high in the previous period, hampering growth at that time. And we are now reaping the benefits of the reforms undertaken in a lot of member states and of a very accommodative monetary policy made possible after the restoration of financial stability in the Eurozone and the lowering of our fiscal deficits. But in this growth strategy, we have a third component, and that is investment. The European Commission, and now it is agreed by the Parliament and, of course, by the Council, uh, the European Commission launched this plan, so-called Juncker uh, plan. I don't know if I can pronounce still without uh, problems the name of the President of the Commission here in, in Britain. <laughs> At some time it was difficult. Uh, launched is the Juncker plan uh, as big as 2% of GDP. Uh, it is an answer to a major problem. Not only uh, for the European economies, but for all advanced economies. The so-called investment gap. It's a way to... Uh, to deal with what we, call, we can call secular stagnation. One of the main reasons for a lack of investment is the debt overhang, confronting both banks and firms in the Eurozone, which implies a long deleveraging process. This is strongly affecting investment behavior, and low investment demand could also become persistent to the EU's weak productivity performance. In general, the EU has lagged behind other advanced economies in terms of productivity growth, and not just since the crisis. Where total factor productivity growth to remain at such low levels, the set of profitable investment projects, even at very low long-run real rates, would not expand significantly. Investment is also hampered by risk-averse by risk behavior. Recent studies show that demographic developments in Germany could threaten the SMEs, the backbone of the German economy, as the increasing age of owners makes them invest less and mostly in the maintenance of the existing systems. This brings me to demography. It impacts not only investment, but also savings. Older people are saving more. And we really are becoming older. Well, I'm becoming older. Those people aged 65 and over will account for a much larger share of the population, rising from 80% now to 28% in 2016. And those aged 80 and, more and over, rising from 5% to 12%. So this group of 80 and over will become almost as numerous as the young population from 0 to 14 years old. Well, you know all those figures there. I'm not really original when I uh, mention them. Those figures mentioned in, the, in, are mentioned in the recent report of the European Commission and uh, explain the threat of secular stagnation. Older people save more and invest less. This gap, an investment gap, is at the root of our low structural economic growth, and this 
economic potential uh, is estimated at 1%. We can avoid this possible secular stagnation. Simulations by researchers at the OECD suggest that a broad package of labor, product, tax, and pension reforms would raise GDP per capita <coughs> by about 11% after 10 years for the average EU member states under relatively quick reform implementation. The equivalent for the United States is under 5%. It is in, in the Union or in the Eurozone 11%. Among the advanced economies, the Eurozone, along with Japan, has the most to gain from structural reforms. An economic potential of 1% growth doesn't allow us to finance our social models, our famous European way of life. It is as simple as that. We cannot make reforms difficult or impossible and at the same time advocate maintaining our social models. It's the economy is truer than ever. Such reforms in the labor market are also bringing down unemployment levels. The strongest example is Germany. It had the same level of unemployment as France in 2007, not centuries ago. Germany's unemployment rate is now more than half as high as in France. Germany is now reaping the benefits of the reforms decided on 10 years ago. The payback period is even shorter than those 10 years. The long term it starts now. But most of these, these reforms can be decided on a national or on a regional level. In an economic and monetary union, they are also important for the Eurozone as a whole. A lack of structural growth in one or more countries can jeopardize the monetary union again as a whole. The Eurozone is now more solid than it was a few years ago, three years ago. A Brexit would be in the first place a social and economic catastrophe for the Greek people. We want, we want to keep the club together because an exit of a country creates a dangerous precedent and creates uncertainty in case of problems in a country, another country, later on. Of course, each country has to comply with the rules of the club. Other countries did, and so can Greece. So at the level of the Union and at the Eurozone, reforms are also needed with the aim of correcting the fragmentation of our common market. And that's a key word, fragmentation. The single market is much more than just free movement of goods, services, workers and capital. It's about sectoral policies, industrial policies in the broad sense of the term. I gave you an example of where I will give you an example uh, on, on this fragmentation. I'll give you two examples, one on energy and one on the digital. During my mandate, I launched the idea of the so-called energy union, a digital single market and a common research area. All are meant to put an end to fragmentation. 
We have to complete our internal energy market so that we no longer have 28 fragmented national energy markets. But a fully integrated internal market where gas and electricity can cross borders and flow freely. The internal market will contribute to lower prices, to alleviate our dependency on import energy. It is already now 57%. It will grow to this dependency to uh, 67% in 2030. And it will also allow us to strengthen our energy security. The high dependency from one supplier, one supplier on oil and gas and its geopolitical danger is an opportunity to create that single energy market. Never waste a good crisis. So the energy picture is more positive when we take into account also that the EU is now a global leader towards a low carbon economy. We are living in Europe through a spectacular renewable energy boom. That's on the positive side. But on the, let's say on the negative side, we have to work much more on this internal defragmented market. We also have to overcome the fragmentation in the digital market. I put the digital economy on the agenda of the European Council in the autumn of 2013. The European Commission updated this conclusion, the conclusions of the Council, in its digital single market communication of last month. A strong digital economy is vital for growth and European competitiveness in a globalized world. All efforts must be made for European European industry to regain momentum in digital products uh, and services. None of the big internet platforms is European. We were leading the development of mobile phones, but not in the broadband anymore. And there is an urgent need for an integrated single digital and telecom market benefiting consumers and companies. Fragmentation hampers the release of the digital economy's full potential. And as part of its long-term growth strategy, Europe must boost digital data-driven innovation across all sectors of the economy. We have a problem in Europe of total factor productivity, as I said, even in Germany and in the UK. Of course, we have a problem in the public sector, and here also the digital can give the right answers. Fragmentation in the telecom sector is an impediment for, for investment in new broadband. Such consolidation is already in place in the United States, in China, in Japan. For us, we have to say the time of the national champions is over. And so during the survival crisis of the Eurozone, we did not restrict our focus to crisis management. It took a lot of energy, of course, this crisis management, time and political capital. But we never lost sight of the broader picture and the longer term. And that's why we worked on genuine economic and monetary union. And that's why we dedicated European councils on specific themes as energy, digital, innovation, taxation, industrial competitiveness, defense industry, and trade. And speaking of trade, there's another driver for growth. We are an open continent inside and outside. The European Union has not given in to protectionist tendencies. That we didn't make the mistake of the 30s. We supported every attempt to bring the multinational, <coughs> multilateral Doha round to a good end. It failed. And that's why we are now negotiating bilateral free trade agreements 
with the United States, with Japan, with Brazil in the, in the Mercosur negotiations. We concluded such agreement with Canada, with Singapore and with Korea. And we have to convince now again our people that free trade is good for growth and good for jobs. It would be paradoxical that the United Kingdom, champion of the free trade, would be cut off from the biggest single market in the world and its network of free trade agreements. Trade is a fundamental choice of economic strategy. The countries in the world engaged in globalization are growing fast and are pulling hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and out of misery. An exit would not only fragment our single market, it would be amputated. A standalone in the globalized world is almost a contradiction in terms. In times of interdependence, it would be strange, even absurd, that the EU's common market would be weakened by losing one of its key members. I cannot imagine borders for trade and investment between the UK and the Union. We don't need more borders, but less borders. And I hope that reason ultimately will prevail. Ladies and gentlemen, I speak to you today a bit less than a year after having left office and a bit more than three years after worked for the first time on the report of the so-called four presidents, European Council, European Commission, the ECB and the Eurogroup, on the first report of the four presidents back in the spring of 2012. Our union has moved and changed a lot in since the global financial crisis and the European crisis. But the road to make it more solid is a long one and clearly more needs to be done by my successors. I spent too much time doing crisis management with institutions that were not designed for rapid executive decisions, but rather for long and difficult consensus building. The essence of my job has been to try and respect the institutional mandate given to me, but to adapt it to times of crisis that required certainly a greater degree of involvement by the European heads of state and government than it is the norm. A number of things have changed and have happened since then, unprecedented things even. Commitment to keeping the monetary union together and the solidarity via our mechanism that we call in our jargon EFSF and ESM, the European Stability Mechanism, 500 million euros. Improvement in the governance of the, European, uh, of, the, of, the, of the Eurozone on the basis of the report of my task force, and I delivered that report, I think, in October 2010. In the midst of the crisis, we are involved in crisis management, but in the same time we were thinking on how could we prevent that that, that kind of crisis would happen again in the future. Third, realization that monetary policy had a critical role to play in keeping the euro together by limiting speculation on sovereign debts, limiting financial fragmentation, major problem, and undercutting expectations of the euro breakup. So that were the programs that we call SMP uh, and OMT, remember the famous words 
of Draghi that he will do whatever it takes and behind those words or those new mechanisms. And of course the banking union which has contributed to repair financial integration, re-establish the ability of the financial sector to play its role of sharing economic risks through time and across space. So establishing the banking union is probably the single most important reform since the launch of the euro. When fully operational and with the backstops, I think that the minimum, the minimum requirements for a stable economic and monetary union will be in place. We have successfully overcome the monetary union's existential crisis with new rescue mechanisms, stronger governance and the banking union. The question now is, can we afford to stop here? Surely not. I, for one, believe that it is already time, that it is already time to prepare the ground for the next steps needed to complete the economic and monetary union's architecture. Rome was not built in one day. So, uh, there is a link between monetary policy and, and the banking union in the sense that it was the decision of the Eurozone summit in June 2012 to launch the banking union, starting with the centralization of bank supervision that allowed President Draghi to make his whatever-it-takes speech and later on to launch the OMT. Both the June 2012 summit and Draghi's speech marked a turning point in the crisis. What didn't work out so well and what remains on the agenda? And here uh, we have to acknowledge that a lot of work still has to be done. In particular, the Eurozone needs closer coordination of structural economic policies. In this context, it is essential to build a consensus on the number of fundamental principles that should guide structural policies, but only in those areas crucial for the smooth functioning of the economic and monetary union. And the labor markets is one of these areas. The idea would be to set out a gradual and monitored process of structural convergence, ensuring all countries are well equipped to reap the full economic gains from their participation in the economic and monetary union. All in all, a bit like the fiscal converging process that preceded the establishment of the euro. Looking a little bit further into the future, those eurozone countries that successfully meet these criteria concerning the labor market and employment could more easily develop and join risk-sharing mechanisms which would help further strengthen their resilience to macroeconomic fluctuations. Such mechanisms could take several forms but they should be designed in a way that offers a real incentive for convergence while at the same time avoiding moral hazard. One proposal that was in the four president's report, one proposal that, that is often put forward and also in my report in this context is a joint unemployment insurance scheme. It goes beyond this lecture to discuss the merits of such a scheme, but we are far, very far from an agreement. I defended this idea in the European Council. I never was alone in the European Council, but at that moment in time, I was the only one, the only one to defend it. But history will give me. <laughs> <laughs> Problem is that you have to wait a long time. 
So, uh, we have to work on the fiscal union, we have to work on the economic union, and actually I spoke on both teams already in, in what I just said about uh, structural policies and about the labor market. The fiscal union question with the need with the need for a, need a central fiscal capacity, that we call it, or a budget for the euro. It was difficult to open that debate, as I've just mentioned. It is now again on the agenda. It was my conviction then, and it remains now, that the monetary union with the budget to respond to macroeconomic shocks, uh, for instance, uh, 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 macroeconomic shocks, and proceed with the necessary transfers is a fragile the construction. If we don't have such a budget, if we don't have such a fiscal capacity to, uh, let, let's say, to absorb what we call asymmetric macroeconomic shocks, then it will be very difficult to have, a, in the longer term, a stable monetary union. Uh, we have only a very small budget, 1% of European GDP. We are discussing if this budget may increase from 1.2 to 1.23 or 24. Right? That we are discussing about. The overall of the average of public expenditures in the European Union is 47% of GDP. 47%. And so we are discussing a European Union budget that is as big as 1% of European GDP. To give you just a flavor of uh, how small this budget is. And so we need, when there is an asymmetrical shock in the Union, we need to organize some what we call in the, in the economic theory automatic stabilizers. But with 1%, you can't have a stabilizing impact at all. So we need a, an additional fiscal capacity. And this insurance, this unemployment insurance uh, mechanism was one of the ideas. The second is the economic union, where various ideas have emerged, including that of what we call in our language the mutually agreed contractual arrangements. When, when you use a complicated term, that means that you have a lot of problems behind it. <laughs> that, that you need a difficult word to, in, in some way, to hide them. There were actually there were agreements. That was the idea between the European Commission and the Member States on structural reforms. We keep the competences where they were, or where they where they are in the, the national level, but the country could conclude a contract freely on the content. We can on. on what they will do as structural reforms. So it, it was in some way not touching upon competencies. It was not a loss of sovereignty, but it was felt as it was, as, as it was a loss of sovereignty. And that's why we couldn't agree. And other countries, they are, uh, were ready to accept the idea of that kind of contracts if there was an incentive financially to conclude such, such a contract that they called solidarity. And if you have a mix of problems related to sovereignty 
and problems related to to solidarity, if you have a mix of those problems, good luck. Then you know that uh, the game is not over, but that you have to continue the discussion. Another point is the political dimension of the Economic and Monetary Union and its institutional consequences. This is a difficult topic, but it immediately raises questions about treaties, but also about the political underpinning of the Monetary Union. It is also a difficult issue to be raised by people in office because it forces each and every one of them a critical assessment of their own institution. In addition, the fact that the last treaty reform has been so traumatic across Europe doesn't encourage approaching this question with an open mind. Leaders come to this discussion knowing in advance that they don't want to engage in a deep and wide institutional reform. And what is clear with the crisis is that the euro area has a decision-making deficit. So if we speak about deepening the economic and monetary union, it has to be in the first place within the existing treaties or with treaties of an intergovernmental kind, as we concluded uh, in, uh, by the end of 2011, the so-called Fiscal Compact Treaty. Finally, this is very much connected to the institutional debate or the lack thereof. It is the question of the place of the single currency in the European Union. We continue to live with a treaty and an outlook that considers that the euro is the currency of the Union. You have to know that the, common, the, the, the euro, our common currency, is to join the euro is an obligation for the member states. It's an obligation. Some have an, ob, obtained an, an opt-out, called the UK, but also Denmark. Has, these have really a formal opt-out. And Sweden, that likes to think that it has an opt-out, even if it doesn't. So uh, we have to reflect on this because we are with 19 already, and nine are not a member, and three will never be a member. But it's, it's considered as the, the currency of the Union, according to treaties. We have probably reached the limits how much and how long we can pretend that the EU and the euro area can work under the illusion that the two completely overlap. Indeed, the euro area does require a far greater degree of political integration to work properly, which may not be the case of the EU as a whole. It doesn't mean, however, that the EU as a whole doesn't also require more integration, in particular in such areas as energy, digital or defence. But I appreciate that the pace of integration in the euro area and in the EU might be different, which might require a form of a so-called two-tire Europe. And let me just say a word on this two-tire Europe. So what does it mean? What does it mean for the famous expression of the ever closer union? To my mind, it is above all about an ever closer monetary union, an ever closer eurozone. In this context, I'd also like to bring to your attention a sentence which was agreed by the June 2014 European Council, a summit held in the town hall of Ypres in Flanders after a moving World War I commemoration. It was an important sentence. 
written by the leaders on the spot, crafted as it were in the shadow of history. I will read it out since people seem to have missed it or forgotten about it, and that's what the European Council said, and I'm quoting. The UK raised concerns related to the future development of the EU. These concerns will need to be addressed. In this context, the European Council noted that the concept of an ever closer union allows for different paths of integration for different countries, allowing, that, allowing those that want to deepen integration to move ahead while responding the wish of those who do not want to deepen any further. End of the quotation. This is paragraph 27 of the June 2014 European Council conclusions. It carries, as it were, the signature of both the British Prime Minister, the German Chancellor and the other leaders. It is not up to me to say much more about the British exercise. It would just highlight that almost all concerns can be addressed within the treaty and by implementing the treaty. For the Economic and Monetary Union to work properly, economies must be competitive, innovative and be able to adjust to shocks without creating excessive unemployment and other imbalances. But that is not enough. In a monetary union where exchange rate adjustments are not possible, economies must also be able to share risks within the Economic and Monetary Union. This risk sharing can be either private or public. And the more private risk sharing there is, the less public risk sharing will be necessary. Risk sharing did not work well during the crisis. Private risk sharing can be achieved through the banking union and the capital markets union. And therefore completing the banking union with the necessary backstops to the single resolution fund should be a priority. In addition, it is time that we also reflect on the place of the third leg of a fully-fledged banking union, alongside single supervision and single resolution, and I mean a common deposit guarantee. I see from the documents that have been made public uh, about the forthcoming reports on the future of the Economic and Monetary Union, so the, the new for President's report, that indeed the possibility of a common deposit guarantee scheme is being considered. Conclusion of this short chapter on the Economic and Monetary Union. Looking forward, it is clear to me that the Economic and Monetary Union inevitably requires sharing more sovereignty over time. The euro area is the world's second largest economy. It cannot be managed exclusively through the rule-based cooperation. As President Draghi said, a genuine economic and monetary union requires a shift from a system of rules to a system of further sovereignty sharing within common institutions that are accountable and democratically legitimate. As we progress in that direction and we accept more common decision-making on economic, fiscal and financial policies, we should also put in place mechanisms for public risk sharing. In the meantime, the risk sharing necessary to make the economic and monetary union should be mainly private. A strong commitment in that direction would not just help uh, dispel, dispel doubts about the long-term viability of the union, it would also help raise confidence in the short term. Allow me finally 
to give some uh, concluding uh, remarks. The title of my speech is the Economic Monetary Union Work in Progress. That means that there is progress, otherwise I hadn't chosen that title. <laughs> and that we have to make more progress. The Eurozone will always be something very specific. Because the Eurozone will never become one country as the United States. Its architecture will be based on responsibility, solidarity and shared sovereignty. We need more responsibility from each member state to put its house in order. Uh, and not only thinking at the future of its own citizens, but also keeping in mind the euro area as a whole. We need, we need even more responsibility, uh, solidarity than today, and then we should <coughs> during the crisis. I'm uh, referring to the rescue funds. Uh, uh, and one of the aims for this more solidarity is a better capacity to absorb these, these macroeconomic shocks and we need more transfer of sovereignty to community institutions under democratic control. All this will take time. But I fear that most of the member states are only ready to agree on such reforms under pressure, in times of crisis, on the edge of the abyss. When there is no market pressure, we need pressure coming from the institutions. And that's why the upcoming report of the four presidents is an important one. Second observation. We shouldn't be focused only at the short term, although it is important to show results to the citizens in terms of growth and jobs on the short term. Citizens want to know things are moving in the right direction, even too slowly. To my mind, it is no coincidence that the latest opinion polls are showing that the support of the, for the Union is recovering too. I'm referring to the PEW polls released two weeks ago looking at our six largest member states and done by an independent Washington Research Institute. After a big fall with the year 2013 as the worst one, support for Europe has bottomed out and is increasing again. And this was especially true in Spain and also for the United Kingdom, uh, but I come on, uh, back on this theme later on. Results, re results reconcile European citizens with policies, be it at a national or a European level. Because let us not forget that there is as much disenchantment and as much malaise at the national level as at the European level. Populism tends to exploit this but this malaise existed in a lot of countries years before the banking crisis. Populism is in several countries not a new phenomenon, not linked to the crisis in some countries and not linked to the crisis, banking crisis or the crisis in the Eurozone. But some economies in the Eurozone, that's why we have to keep the longer term in mind, were and are very weak. They are not really modern. Their political institutions are stronger than their administrative institutions. In some of our member states, corruption is still a systemic problem. Making economies more competitive, public services more performant, is a work of the long haul. Apparently, these reforms can only be made under pressure. Reforming is as tough as austerity. 
sometimes even more. We have to adapt our social models to our economic capacities whilst we are enhancing our economic long-term potential. We lived during years in a number of countries on public and private debt. The private debt in the Eurozone was on average, on average, 200%, 200% of GDP. The growth rates of the pre-27 uh, years were in a lot of countries artificial. All this has to be corrected. It is a painful operation and not always have the stronger shoulders carried the heaviest burden. But we shouldn't forget that we are not involved in some countries in an adjustment process, but in a transformative process. process. We have to take decisions with 28 or 90, and a crisis helps to get that consensus. You always need a good president of the council, but the crisis helps. We are all in the same boat in those days. The Eurozone is not economically homogeneous, but it is politically less fragmented than is described in some media. Even in the Greek crisis, it is not north against south, the EPP against the socialists. Actually, it is 18 against 1. But still, I speak now the group of 18, in a spirit of compromise. And I'm not desperate. Europe is tough, what the French would say, l'Europe est coriace. And that's why I relativize the debate about more or less Europe. In a way, there have been two reactions to the financial and economic crisis. One reaction was to say we need less Europe, or even no Europe at all, according to some radical forces. The European Union was seen as a problem rather than as a solution. Of course, this negative sentiment was already there and has been expressed previously in popular votes, for instance, in referenda, but I'm speaking about the French and the Dutch referenda, but it is more entrenched today than it was in the past. The other reaction was to say, now we need more Europe, in particular because we must draw all the consequences from sharing a single currency. Perhaps a Europe of necessity after the previous free choice to establish the euro. The necessity, for instance, to have a single banking supervision and bettering, better monitoring of economic policies of each other, but also to stimulate and urge structural reforms of labour markets, product markets, tax and pension systems. The compromise has been to say that we can do both, with less Europe in certain fields and more Europe in others. More Europe, especially for the Eurozone, this is where the most momentous decisions of the past years have been taken, rescue mechanism, oversight in the banking union, and at the same time, two detailed examinations in the United Kingdom and in the Netherlands investigated what competencies could possibly be repatriated to the member states. The results was in both cases not that many. It was more a matter of proportionality of being, as some as uh, has uh, become the common view since then, small on small things and big on big things. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm now really concluding. <laughs> In any case, Europe is a big thing. And I'm ending in a poetical way the bicentenary 
of the Battle of Waterloo in the, the very day that it took place. And, and Waterloo is a neighboring commune of my commune. The bicentenary of the Battle of Waterloo reminds us that what there happened there is not possible anymore. And the Treaty of Rome establishing the European Union is historically much more important than the Congress of Vienna. And so I'm ending with what I started. The European Union is basically a peace project. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for this uh, wide scope of discussion on present and future of um, the European Monetary Union, of the European Union as a whole. I would like now to invite the audience to ask questions, and let's start immediately. Can you also then present yourself? Hello. Uh, thank you. I am, uh, my name is Jonas Meyer. I'm a Danish student here. I study EU politics. Um, it seems to me that... <laughs> it seems to me that, that, that you agree with Paul de Gros that we need further political integration, especially an um, unemployment benefit scheme for the Eurozone. So my question has two parts. First, how much of a, re how much of a renewed political mandate from, from the citizens in the Eurozone do you think we need in order to move forward with further integration? My own fear is that if, if, if you don't ask the citizens, you risk um, pushing them even further away from the project. <clears throat> Second of all, as we know with referenda, we risk getting a no from the populations. My own country, Denmark, is a very good example of that. Um, we saw it in France, we saw it in, in, in the Netherlands. So if, if we do ask voters in the Eurozone about further integration in, in the Eurozone, and you get a no. What is the alternative? A, a breakup of the Eurozone, moving forward with a few countries, or, or just muddling through? Thank you. you I answer now, or we take some um, questions? Uh, maybe we together? take uh, two or three no. questions, and then yeah. you can wrap it up. Yeah. Uh, let me start there. Yeah, please. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you, Mr. Van Rompuy, for a very uh, full and illuminating um, contribution. Uh, I speak as somebody, my name is John Palmer, who's a, a long track record in supporting closer European integration, a strong uh, and developing economic and monetary union, and eventually, uh, in stages, perhaps a political union. But I am staggered uh, at the short-sightedness of the economic strategy which is being pursued at the moment at the euro area level. I speak not of reforms that are necessary, but of the insistence on a degree of austerity which is only leading to more debt in Greece, more debt in Spain, more debt in Portugal. When will the euro area authorities see the value of what you were saying about moving to growth and stimulus uh, as opposed to what we're seeing at the moment in the potential tragedy of Greece. Okay. Yes. 
Uh, thank you very much. I'd like to follow on from the previous point uh, because um, as we meet, uh, there is at the very least the possibility that Greece will fall out of the Eurozone. So my question is again in two parts. First of all, on the basis that prevention is better than cure, how could we have avoided the situation which we've currently reached? And secondly, how can we ensure that we don't repeat it? As one who would like to campaign for this country to remain within the European Union, my task is made a great deal more difficult by these problems. Thank you. Yeah, let, let me now give the uh, yeah. floor to Emma Thank you for those questions. Uh, first of all, on the deepening of the economic and monetary union, of course you need always the support of the member states and the, all the leaders are democratically elected on a national basis, of course. So when they take decisions, they have to come home. I was Prime Minister myself, and you have to explain to the public opinion, to your parliament, that uh, this decision is benefiting also your own country, benefiting the Eurozone and the Union, but also benefiting your own country. So the, there is a democratic legitimacy via that way, and you know how important the European Council was during the crisis, not because... Uh, all of a sudden uh, they discovered uh, of the, the, there was a, some kind of power game. No, not at all. Because we were working with taxpayers' money in the Eurozone. So it was normal that the, the leaders would be the first to be involved in the decision-making. And so they had to explain to their public that their decisions were the right one. And some of the leaders, not to speak Germany but others, were re-elected even after those difficult decisions. So this, I, I'm not agreeing with those who are saying that there was no democratic legitimacy of the, the, the decisions we took, not at all even. <coughs> Second part of my answer is, uh, is a referendum always the best way to get public support? I come from a country, and Paul also, who did it once. It was a catastrophe, a big catastrophe. <laughs> there was a majority for the, the king coming back, and finally, the king couldn't, couldn't come back. Uh, but, okay, uh, some have the referenda in their constitution, some have traditions of it. Most of the member states have no tradition of, uh, of referenda. Uh, so, deepening the economic and monetary union, uh, you need public support, but you can have it via parliaments, uh, and because they are representing... Uh, public uh, public opinion on each step you have to organize a referendum of course uh, because if you start with referenda you never know where it ends will we organize a referendum when we have to raise taxes or when, when we are cutting be uh, social benefits uh, there's nobody asking for referenda at that time and there are essential decisions also in the life uh, of a nation uh, and uh, highly highly political so I can we can go forward. We can go forward in deepening the economic and monetary union because, let's say, the prosperity of the citizens of the eurozone depends on it. This crisis, we, we took major decisions already, but we have to deepen the economic and monetary union. Uh, and uh, I, I'm sure that uh, Paul de Grauwen in his uh, in his course. 
uh, we'll explain it, and I've touched upon on, on several occasions. So we, we know what the, the coming steps are. We can do it, in my view, within the treaties. We don't need treaty change for that. I said it also to, our, to the British <coughs> Prime Minister two or three years ago when all those questions came up. And I said it already then. We can do our job. And I know that in Britain some are we're thinking, you need treaty change, we need treaty change, so it is an objective alliance. Not at all. We don't need treaty change at this stage. At this stage. So I think we can have democratic legitimacy, because uh, we can always do better, but via the national parliaments. And of course, for some of the decisions we took, for instance, in the banking union, the, the single resolution uh, mechanism and so on, we need the approval of the European Parliament, directly elected European Parliament. The main problem with public opinion is, and, and I come back to the questions, uh, the two or the three uh, latest, uh, latest questions, the big problem was that we, we had to face a crisis, banking crisis, crisis of the Eurozone, economic crisis, crisis in unemployment, and as long as there are no results for your policies, then there is that kind of malaise and disenchantment. We need always two things to convince public opinion. We need words, rhetoric, language, political leadership to defend the decisions. And we need also concrete deeds and results in terms of jobs and in terms of growth people became in a lot of countries for reasons nothing to do with Europe became very skin cynical and are only believing what they see and if they see improvement even if it is slow improvement if they see light in the tunnel then you get much more approval much more approval and that was let's say that in 2014 we started uh, with, uh, with more economic growth and in 2015 and 16 it will be more clear. By the way, in Greece for this year and next year before the elections a growth rate of 3% was foreseen. I know after 25% loss in GDP and is it more easy to have 6% in plus but at least there were perspective that things are going in the right direction. This is, at this stage, uh, not the case uh, anymore. So I think that getting the, the support of public opinion is mainly by showing results of what we are doing. And we have to know, and that's why I, I put such, so much emphasis on it, we have to know that we are in, involved in a long-term process. Some economies are not really modern economies. I will not say what kind of country and in which country were part of it. But are weak economies, weak economies. And they can overcome, they cannot overcome their problems even not in, in three, four or five years' time. It's a major, major uh, trans transformative process that they have to, uh, to undergo. On austerity, um, first of all, austerity was imposed not only by the institutions, 
was imposed also by the markets. They lost confidence in some of the countries. And the only way to restore confidence, because it was related to public deficits and, and public debt, the restore confidence was to show that we are working on it, that, that, we, are that we are ready to decrease the level of deficits. We, we know, or everybody knows, that an adjustment process costs in terms of growth. I was involved already in the beginning of the 80s in my country in an adjustment process. We had a public deficit of 15% of GDP, one-five, exactly the level that Greece had in 2010, exactly. We had, when I became Minister of the Budget, a public debt level of 135%, exactly what Greece had in 2010. So we know all about this. And decreasing the deficit and decreasing the public debt level, there is a cost in terms of growth and of jobs. What we have to do at that, at that moment is to, to take all the necessary, of, let's say in the austerity, you can build in fairness. You can <coughs> put the biggest burden, the heaviest burden, uh, on the, the strongest shoulders, uh, uh, expression that, that we use in, in our countries. So justice, fairness, is in the first place a responsibility of the member states. Of course they have to take tough measures, hurting people, but you can do it also in different ways. And mostly the European Union is not imposing what you have to do. They're imposing the target, and you're free to implement this in the mix of taxes, tax increases, of expenditure cuts, and in the expenditure cut, what kind of cuts, and in taxation, what kind of taxation. So it is, of course, it is a matter, uh, there is a cost on the adjustment and even more than, than adjustment. But in the first place, it was in some way triggered by the financial, by the financial markets. Once we saw, and I'm speaking on average in the Eurozone, that financial stability was restored, and that was also <coughs> due to the efforts made at the level of member states, and what we did on the level of the Eurozone and the Union. When confidence came back, then we could embark more easily on a growth strategy. And it's at that time we started with this accommodative, or the central bank started with accommodative monetary policy. We couldn't also, uh, let's say, use the rules, the fiscal rules, in, in a more reasonable way. And that's why the last two years, at least, uh, the fiscal targets of the fiscal policy is now what, what we say neutral vis-à-vis -vis the cycle. And that we could start uh, with uh, this, uh, this investment program. But first of all, we had to restore confidence. You can say the price was too high. And I know that the, the, the IMF now, after 
after having said other things, uh, had this uh, research results about the multiplier and so on. Now I have read that the European Commission had made another econometric study proving just the opposite. Okay, economics, I was an economist, is not an exact <laughs> science, we know this. Uh, so, but at least, at least we could restore uh, we could restore confidence and now we were or we are on the right track uh, having paid the price could be that the price was was too high could also be that some of the decisions we took are a little bit too little and too late uh, I accept all this criticism but we overcame an existential threat to the eurozone and after that we started with another kind uh, of, uh, of policy. For the program countries, it is more difficult. Because if we say to a country, you can lessen your fiscal targets, and if they are not, have, have, if they are not yet possibility to return to the markets, to, uh, to borrow money on the financial markets, then we, the European Union, has to lend that money. The less they do on the fiscal side, the more the member states have to do. And you have to always to take this in mind because we are facing two kinds of criticism. And speaking of the Eurozone, Britain is not part of the Eurozone. Two kinds of criticism. In the creditor countries, people are saying, why risking our money for those countries who didn't do who didn't do their duty they, they, they and, and of course everybody's making caricature of all this but why be showing solidarity because they hadn't taken their responsibility in due time and in the debtor countries they are blaming, again, Brussels, but in the credit countries they are also blaming Brussels. They are blaming Brussels because they, they have the feeling that all those measures are imposed on them, huh? that they had to do this uh, <coughs> because it was uh, some kind of obligation because they, they, the, the rules were applied in a very, very severe way. So this, this makes us not popular at, at all popular at all and we are, we are very much uh, um, aware uh, of this but again in my view uh, we, we are in, an, in a process that is not a short term process in most of our member states we are not at the end of the road of reforms could be we can lessen in terms of fiscal consolidation but we have to do much more in terms of reforms. And that in the meantime, if we can get higher economic growth, and as I said, increase in jobs, and we are creating three and a half million jobs in the upcoming three years, this helps the public acceptance of, uh, of what we are doing. But never forget that we are in the same time embarked in something that is going beyond short-term results and short-term policies. I will have to be selective here. Um, I think I will start there in the middle, yeah? <coughs>
temperature is rising here. Um, a bit. <laughs> Hi. Uh, what reforms are being done to the agric common agricultural policy? Oh. And will be done. Okay. And gentleman here. Uh, I am Ali Alagra, Emeritus Professor of International Economic Integration. I would just like to congratulate for dealing with all the, practically all the points that Mr. Cameron has raised for renegotiation with Europe uh, in a very subtle way, sometimes openly not subtle way. But you also have dealt with the problems of UKIP by emphasizing that there is no way Britain on its own can negotiate trade deals with the outside world without being a member of the European Union. So my question is not a question. I hope that your speech will be made available to those people. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, there. Uh, thank you very much for your lecture. Uh, well, uh, two points, one related to Greece and one to Germany and its interrelated questions. I think term, Grexit, which adopted publicly, it's really a wrong one. We rather say about uh, something Greek rouse and Greeks fry, because uh, I see that Greece Greek people as a Greek European brothers and sisters want to say, stay in uh, European Union, in Eurozone, but I see enormous push from um, Frau Merkel and Germany to kick uh, Greece out uh, of Europe and Eurozone to teach lesson the whole Europe that if uh, Europe uh, will not comply and not adapt uh, really uh, German style of leadership uh, really like uh, German order, uh, they will be punished. I really hate to acknowledge that uh, since pretty long time, uh, European media more and more uh, remind me dear Deutschland Wochenschau with just um, Frau Merkel uh, citations, uh, pictures, uh, and even if, uh, and most recent in Riga when she just show on to door uh, Mr. Juncker when he tried to join conversation between Greece, Germany, and France. Uh, it's absolutely Excuse disgusting. Can, can it's absolutely form formulate your question. Formally? Okay. How long European Union and institutions around not only in Brussels, but in different European Union countries uh, countries will really just follow orders? from Reich's Chancellery and Wolf Sanse, and okay. how... So thank you. you, you formulated your question. Uh, is there any other... It's not so simple. It's going creation of Fourth Reich in Europe. L last one, yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, perhaps diverging from Economic and Monetary Union, um, Mr. Van Rompuy, you were uh, the first president of the European Council after the Lisbon reform, and um, 
My understanding is that the Lisbon reform was um, meant to streamline the process, institutional process of the of the European Union, um, ensure that it's more forward-thinking um, and less of this crisis management you, you talked about. Um, you yourself had to call for extraordinary European councils, as far as I recall. Uh, President Tusk uh, had to, well, so far, had to call one. Uh, he's called another extraordinary Euro summit uh, for Monday. Um, aren't we seeing not enough of uh, the streamlining of institutional process, European Council becoming still the crisis management body rather than forward-thinking top strategy, not management body of the European Union as it's meant to be. And um, you, you've been saying that we don't need uh, treaty change. Um, in, in light of this, um, in light of this, what I've just said, uh, aren't we really... Uh, in need of the treaty change to um, make this better or not? Thank you very much. Yeah. On agriculture, I'm not a, an expert at all, eh? although I was uh, six weeks in my career Minister of Agriculture. <laughs> in the dioxin crisis, we are a colleague resigned or had to resign uh, and uh, I became all of a sudden Minister of Agriculture. <laughs> it will be on my obituary, huh? <laughs> Minister of Agriculture. <laughs> so uh, let's say 30 years ago, uh, even less, uh, the agriculture was the only say, competence that was a community uh, competence. Uh, and so it took uh, 70% of the European budget at that time, 70, because it was one of the few really European uh, competences. Now it is uh, around 30%, 30%. Of course, this is also the result of many, many reforms in the agricultural world. world. So the, the time uh, of, uh, of all those mountains with Although those lakes with, with milk and mountains with butter is a long time over. Eh? We changed completely the mechanism. It's not based anymore on inter interventions in the market. It's more based on, uh, on income uh, support and more based on rural development. So there is, a, a, there is less money going to the sector and the money is spent in a totally different way. And it will not be the end of, uh, of, uh, of the road. Eh? So we agreed uh, in the European budget on a budget with a substantial part on, on agriculture because this reason that it is still a very integrated uh, uh, competence is still valid. But uh, it, uh, we agreed on, the, uh, on this budget uh, for the upcoming seven years, but uh, in, in the future I think uh, further changes uh, will be needed. On uh, Greece, yeah, I, I will try to answer in a, in a less passionate way. Eh? <laughs> For me, it's not so difficult to, not to be passionate. Eh? The, uh, but let's let's say, and uh, we're not going in, not going into uh, your uh, your insults and your remarks vis-à-vis -vis, uh, the, the German Chancellor. But in these days, there is something that have to strike not the Greek people but there is, those are responsible 
in Greece, Greek leaders. They are not confronted with the German dictate, diktat. They are confronted with a position that is common for 18 out of the 19 countries in the Eurozone. And this has to ring a bell. And I said it also in my introduction. Those 18 are representing the North, the so-called North and the so-called South. They are representing the so-called conservatives of the EPP, my party, uh, and the Social Democrats or, or the Liberals. So there is all those, those 18 are representing a broad scala of political parties. But they are saying the same thing, the same thing. And I'm still convinced that among those 18, and even in Germany, there is a strong will to find a solution. But it can never be a one-way street. But there is a strong will to find a compromise. That's why I say I am not desperate. But we have to show leadership. And in the European Union, we are always speaking about public support, which is important. But at some moment of time, there is something else in democracy also needed. That is leadership. And leadership, that means that at a certain moment you have to take your responsibilities, going beyond taboos, prejudices, vested interests, and try to convince your electorate, your voters, of the decisions you took. There's not... There's not in these, these days, leadership is not only, according to this famous quotation, I'm their leader, so I'm following them. <laughs> no. Leadership means also take a decision, your responsibility, and try to convince people that, not that you are right, but this was what you could achieve. Uh, and I think this, if this is not leadership is not around the table, then I fear that we go to a catastrophe. But I'm not desperate at all. But it is not Germany against Athens, or Athens against Berlin. There, there is a broad understanding, a broad understanding among 18 countries on what to do. And again, I think there's much more openness than most people think. On our last question, uh, I organized many extraordinary meetings. But I was also in national politics. I, I will not say that we had every week a, a crisis meeting. But that is part of the job. That's part of the job. Uh, you have to deal with the crisis, and, and then you have to organize an extraordinary summit. Uh, and then uh, you have your regular meetings where we try to deal with, uh, with long-term issues, longer-term issues, and so on. That's, that's the definition of politics. And you, even with the, with the overhaul of the treaties, you will still have this. By the way, the European Council, in some way, is the ruling body of the European Union. When I was in the beginning of my mandate, I launched the idea of we need monthly meetings because there's so much on the agenda. Uh, when, I, when I launched that idea, I still remember that 
chancellor and the French president said, we have to come each week, each week to Brussels. <laughs> One and a half year la later, I saw a communique from uh, Frau Merkel and Nicolas Sarkozy. Great innovation. <laughs> <laughs> Monthly meetings of the Eurozone. Time, <laughs> so you have to wait a little bit before uh, you get some uh, uh, support for some of the ideas. So it is not abnormal at all. We, we are working, of the council is working as an, not as a government because we are not in, we are not, we have not really executive powers, but as a steering body of the union. So that they meet frequently and they meet uh, when it is needed. It's absolutely normal and that happens also at the national, uh, national level. So don't blame too much Uh, the union apply the same principles in your criticism and your evaluation and put it uh, this, uh, apply the same principles uh, for national governments as well as for uh, the European Council and European institutions and then you will see there is not that difference Okay, I think we have to conclude here. Um, we have a rule. This is a rule-based institution, and eight o'clock is eight o'clock. And let me, before you, um, let me just call for for thirty seconds. Um, I, I said in the beginning that we went to the same school, and one of the ideals um, that we were given for our life uh, was summarized in, in Latin: "Contemplatio in actione." For those of you who don't understand um, Latin, basically it means um, a thinking person in action. And uh, in a way, that, that's what Herman has become, right? Uh, it's easy to think, it's easy to act, it's much more difficult to think while you act. And I think um, Herman Varompa is, is the, the person who has been able to do that in his career, first in, in um, Belgian politics, but later especially in European politics. And tonight he has shown the thinking part right, uh, of, of uh, his life, but uh, he has been able to combine both, and that, I think, is his great merit. So let's... Uh, <laughs>